has been a little while, huh? Been a little while. Uh, man, I got to be honest with you, that was legitimately the, if I'm honest, legitimately the worst Resurrection Sunday Easter for me, personally. Uh, wow, <clears throat> it was pretty terrible. I, I woke up that Sunday with a 101 degree fever, and I was texting back and forth with the elders the day before. I thought maybe, you know, I could still pull it off. Because at the time, I had just a little bit of sore throat uh, Saturday evening and thought, I was like, you know, I just wear a mask. I'm not going to participate in, you know, the fellowship meal. I, I, if I could just preach. But then, alas, I woke up with that fever and I felt very weak, tired, and it wasn't going to happen. And then after uh, that virus or whatever it was, I woke up one day with really sore throat, itchy throat. And I was really looking forward to being back that next Sunday, but then there was one night where I didn't sleep one minute. I, I would start to fall asleep, but then I would cough myself awake. Um, and then we went to the urgent care, discovered I had some sort of respiratory infection. And to say the least, it wasn't going to work again, unfortunately. I wouldn't be able to get through the sermon without coughing. And I might even, I might even cough today. I still have some congestion, but I am much better than I was. Oh, I have not been that sick in a long time. I don't think I've ever been that sick, actually. So it was, it was pretty terrible. But that being said, I do want to thank Ed. I do want to thank Robbie. I do want to thank Eddie for filling in. It really does mean a lot because I felt terrible. Not only physically did I feel terrible, but I felt terrible that I was missing of all Sundays, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, um, Man, of all Sundays, you know, of all Sundays, but alas, I was sick. Um, And and I want to thank Robert Peake, too. He did a really good job. I I listened to Eddie's sermon. I listened to Robert's sermon. Very good job. He actually covered something I didn't really touch on. I I referenced it, but I didn't really have a sermon on it, the purpose of the Gospel of John. He did a really good job. And there was one thing, one specific quote that really struck me. It was a good thought, if I can find it. I took notes. See, even I take notes of preachers, so let that be a lesson. (laughs) Your preacher takes notes of other preachers. He said, uh, we've never needed God more and never have wanted him less. And that quote sums up our society pretty well. We desperately need God but our society has never wanted him less. So thank you again, Robert, Eddie, uh, Ed, Robert, Robert. I was mixing up Robert and Robbie. (laughs) It means a lot. Uh, It was was terrible. I felt terrible. I honestly, full, full transparency, full vulnerability, I cried. Just so you know, I cried because I missed. Um, Anyway, that, that being said, I do want to pray before we get into the sermon. Lord, I am thankful that you have allowed me to recover. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to read into anything. I'm not going to say, oh, the, you know, maybe you had a reason for me missing. Sometimes it seems like life just hits us, whether we like it or not. Sometimes sickness just hits us, whether we like it or not. There may be no reason for it. But Lord, I thank you that I have recovered. And Lord, I, you, you know how much I want to be here, how much I want to preach and teach how much I want to be with the congregation here. And I'm thankful that 
we are able to be back. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless the work here that is done in this congregation. I pray that you'd bless the service that's being done with the soup kitchen. I pray that you would give me wisdom and knowledge and uh, allow me to preach truth. Uh, Never allow me to get in my own head. Never allow me to preach what I think, but preach what is your truth, what is your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, for the sermon I was going to preach on Easter, uh, I had to edit some of the things because I was, you know, kind of gearing it toward Easter, but it's still going to work anyway because guess what? Uh, Every Sunday I I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention the name of Jesus, right, and what Jesus accomplished. And so the next few weeks, this week and then next week, we're going to cover passages where Jesus, he tells us of his relationship with the Father. And quite frankly, the relationship between the Son and the Father in our passages for the next two weeks That is the main focus. In John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29, son and father are mentioned 18 times in 10 verses. So clearly, their relationship is the main point. It is the main focus of this passage. And not only is it the main focus, their relationship, the son and the father's relationship, has major implication for us. Not just the church, but for mankind as a whole. The relationship between the Son and the Father has major implications. Now, before we get to our passage, though, I want to real quick recap, because it has been a while, what we covered three weeks ago, right? Three weeks ago. I'm, I can't quite remember. So three weeks ago, we covered this paralyzed man who was healed by Jesus, And so in a way, it's Jesus, he's restoring life to him, and it's partially Jesus giving him this rest that he did not have before. And the act of healing is Jesus working as his Father has worked. As Jesus said earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus is working as his Father has worked. And the Jews, they did not like Jesus calling God his Father Because they knew the implications. They knew what Jesus meant when he said, God is my Father. And he makes those implications even more clear in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. So let's read that real quick. We're going to read John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, then we're going to break it down slowly. So the text says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, hopefully, when you read this passage, when you read what Jesus has to say here about his relationship with God the Father, you realize that this is a matter of life and death. 
The relationship between the Son and the Father is a matter of life and death. The, son, the things that the Son does, the things that the Son says, deals with life and death. Because Jesus, He fully understood what He came to accomplish. He understood that it required His life. He understood that it required His death. And He understood that it required His resurrection. So maybe we could say this deals with life, death, and life again. With him and also with us. So slowly break this down. Verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now keep in mind who Jesus is addressing here, right? We've got to keep in mind the context. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, he answered the Jews, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So in our passage that we're dealing with, verses 19 through 24, Jesus is still talking with the Jews. And he tells his people that he does everything he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, whatever Jesus does is according to God the Father's will. And as this verse says, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now ask yourself, what does whatever include? Well, let's start with creation, perhaps. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father created, the Son created. The Father gives life, the Son gives life. The Father creates everything that we see, touch, feel, everything that we know, the Son has created everything that we see, touch, feel, and know. So that's what whatever includes. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. The Father shows the Son all that He is doing. And apparently the Father is going to show the Son greater works. So if the Father shows the Son greater works, what does that tell us about the Son? That the Son's going to do greater works, right? Because whatever the Son sees the Father doing, that the Son does likewise. Now ask yourself, what great works have we already seen in the Gospel of John? We saw earlier on that Jesus, he just miraculously knows who people are, right? He saw Nathaniel, not previously knowing who Nathaniel was, yet he miraculously knew something about him. We saw that Jesus, he changed water into wine. In a way, it's like an act of creation. We saw Jesus, he healed a child. He healed a child even though he was 15 miles away from him. And then we saw him heal a paralyzed man who was paralyzed for 38 years. So what greater work than those? Those seem pretty good to me, right? Those seem pretty sufficient. If anything's going to show me that he's the Son of God, those certainly do. What greater works? Again, if this was Easter, it would be pretty obvious, right? But you know what greater works. I don't need to 
tell you. Verse 21 explicitly tells us, it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. See, just as the Father raises the dead, the Son raises the dead. Now here's a question for you. How many times in the Old Testament were the dead raised? Anybody got that little trivia knowledge? How many times in the Old Testament were the dead raised? Three times. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elisha, he raises a widow's son. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises a Shunammite woman's son. In 2 Kings chapter 13, we see that Elisha, he's dead in a tomb, and the Israelites, they're having a funeral for a man. But then the Moabites attack them, and so they throw this Israelite man in Elisha's tomb, and then when he touches Elisha's body, he is raised. Three times the dead are raised in the Old Testament. Now, how many times does Jesus raise people from the dead in the New Testament? Three times. Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises the widow's son, might I add, with much more ease than Elijah did. And Luke chapter 8, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. And in John chapter 11, in the gospel that we're dealing with, Jesus raises Lazarus. He calls him from the tomb, though it has been four days. Three raised in the Old Testament and three raised in the New Testament by Jesus. Now, I think there's an intentional parallel here. Now, these are not the only resurrections in Scripture But there's three raised in the Old Testament and three raised in the New Testament by Jesus. See, just as the Father raises the dead, the Son raises the dead. Now, in our text, John chapter 5, verse 22, it might seem like it takes a weird turn. It might seem irrelevant to what he has said thus far, but look at the text. It's not irrelevant. John chapter 5, verse 22. It says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why is that relevant? Because, well, obviously, we already know on the last day, we will be raised to what? Judgment day. That's why this is relevant. And the text says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, I want to emphasize that this text here, this verse did not say that God does not judge. Rather, no, the Father has given judgment to the Son. Now, you may wonder why. Why would the Father give all judgment to the Son? Now, next week, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. But for now, just understand that this is what the text is saying. Jesus, the Son, is our judge, keeping in mind that Jesus' will is not contrary to the Father's Will It is the Father's will that Jesus the Son be the judge. And verse 23 actually adds to this. It might add a little explanation. It says, so in verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that or so that all may honor the Son. So it seems part of the reason the Father has given judgment to the Son is so that all honor the Son. So that we would honor the Son since He is our judge. Now think of this metaphor, it's not going to be the best, but like our court judges, right? Say you have a court date because you broke some law. If you don't show up to the court date, do you honor the judge? No, right? You don't honor the judge. If you don't honor the judge, do you honor the law? No, 
And in a way, the law, it gives the judge authority, right, to judge you. Obviously, without a law, the judge has no power because what is the judge going to judge if there is no law? So if you don't show up to your court, you don't honor the judge. So God the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that we would honor him. That's part of the reason why God has given Jesus the authority to judge. But also notice the major significance about this verse. We can't miss it. So that all honor the Son, second half, just as they honor the Father. Do you see the significance in that phrase, that that statement? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And remember who Jesus is talking to? The Jews. The Jews who worship God the Father. The Jews who go to the temple who, who offer sacrifices to God the Father. And Jesus looks at them and says... You should honor the Son just as you honor the Father. See, if Jesus were not God, this would be blasphemy. And the Jews know that. That's, part, that's largely why the Jews wanted to kill him. Because they viewed his statements, his claims as blasphemy. There are some people who don't think that Jesus claimed to be God. He most certainly did. He looked at Jews and told them, you should honor me just as you honor God the Father. Notice this last half of this verse. He tells them to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Then he says, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is telling his people, he's telling the Jews, look, if you don't honor the Son, if you don't honor me, just as you honor the Father, you don't honor the Father. You don't honor God the Father if you do not honor me as God. You see, it's dishonored to say that Jesus isn't the only way. We all know that we live in a more pluralistic society. That's what really America is. And there are some people, even self-proclaimed Christians, who claim uh, that there are other ways than Jesus. That Jesus isn't the way, that Jesus isn't the truth, that Jesus isn't the life, but that's exactly what Jesus claimed to be. See, it's a misrepresentation. It is a lie to say that Jesus claimed anything different. He said plainly to Jews, if you do not honor me, the Son, just as you honor the Father, you don't honor the Father. You don't honor God. To honor the Father, to honor God, means to honor Jesus as God. Jesus didn't claim anything less. See, there's no other way. There is no other religion that leads to the true God, that leads to life. And you are lying to yourself if you think that he claimed anything different 
Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, Christianity is simultaneously exclusive and inclusive. Exclusive statement. Jesus is the only way. If you do not honor Jesus, you do not honor God the Father. Exclusive. Inclusive. Whoever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Inclusive. See, practically all other religions say, you know what, uh, you just got to do enough. If you do the right ritualism, if, if you pray the right way, if you honor the right God, then maybe you can be saved. If you just do enough, if you do enough good, maybe you can become, as Buddha would say, one with Brahma. If you just do enough, if you do enough good, you can be saved. Christianity says you can't. This is harsh to hear, but uh, let me be frank with you. Some people tell you otherwise. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough by myself. I do not earn my salvation. I did not earn this life. I did not earn eternal life. Christianity says you're not good enough. Therefore, I'm going to send my son, my son who's going to die for you, my son who's going to cleanse you of your sins, and my son who's going to enable you to be sanctified, which is to say be made more holy, to be made more like God. Because you can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own power. And as verse 24 says, whoever, whoever hears my word and believes, it doesn't say just this group of people, just this race, just this ethnicity, oh, just these people who have done all the right things. It doesn't say that. So as whoever believes, whoever hears and believes, him who sent me. Christianity is simultaneously exclusive and inclusive. It's the only way. But there's no requirement for specific. It's not you have to be of a specific background. It's not that you have to check off a list. Whoever hears and believes, whoever hears and trusts has eternal life. So you may have a messy past, but Jesus offers you life. You, you may have gone 50 years of your life unbelieving, but Jesus offers you life. You may have even worshipped a false god, but Jesus offers you life. It's exclusive and inclusive. Whoever hears, whoever believes, present tense. In the Greek, that's present tense. Whoever hears and believes, present tense, has eternal life. Eternal life is not just some distant future promise. It is something that is uh, available, something that Jesus offers now. 
present tense, eternal life. Present tense, passing from death to life. Church, if we are still physically living, how do we pass from death to life in the present tense? Well, presumably it's talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. If we can present tense pass from death to life, it's obviously not talking about physical sense because we are still physically alive. Those are two different states. Before coming to Christ, before believing, before trusting in Christ, you are in a spiritual state of death. But when you believe in him, when you trust in him, you, become, you come into a spiritual state of life. Two different states. A state of spiritual death, a state of spiritual life. And if those are two different states and you go from death to life, what happens? Change. See, Jesus, he doesn't just offer you an opportunity to be cleansed. He offers you an opportunity to be changed. Changed from a spiritual state of death in the present tense to a spiritual state of life in the present tense. And then eventually... Eventually, when he returns, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Those who have gone from a spiritual state of death to a spiritual state of life will dwell with God in his fullness and his perfection. If you recognize your spiritual state, if you are still spiritually dead, why wait? You can come as we stand and sing.